talking about the, we're still talking about the liquidity principle and what Pal you wrote in his essay, in, in his essay liquidity, um, there, we're almost done with this, with this part of the, of the discussion, but just to pull back for a second, because this is, this is a really kind of wonky, the, the talking about like, um, the credit, the credit duration is a very wonky part of the discussion. And just to pull back on why it's so important, the single big dumb lever that the central bank has is this interest rate lever. Mm-hmm. And in, in every episode that we've done, and I keep wanting to drive home in as many ways possible, is that this interest rate tool just it literally can't function in a fiat environment. So I'm trying to attack that point from as many ways as possible. And Pali himself, he uses this essay, liquidity, to make that point. And so I just want to remind people again, that's why we're talking about it. And the other point is that, again, all, the whole reason to do this whole exercise was to try and imagine how will the world and how the economic system work under a Bitcoin standard. And I feel like by understanding the liquidity principle, as Pali describes it, I actually have a, it's a narrow, but I have a plausible concept of how you can actually have credit on a Bitcoin standard and how banks can still lend and still be liquid, which was something that was eluding me before. Hmm. And I feel like this has filled in a major hole for me. Um, And I think a lot of people have trouble understanding a credit system built on Bitcoin because they try to imagine our current credit system, but just built on Bitcoin. And if, if that's what you're trying to do, then yeah, it's totally not possible. Right. You couldn't conceivably build a system where a, the worldwide financial credit, there are you know, um, headlines out uh, last week that it's topping 300 trillion in global debt. And according to the Crypto Voices Base Money website, which is one of my favorites, there's 29.3 trillion in base money. So yeah, if, if, if we had 23 trillion notional value in base money, and it's a deflationary currency that you can never make more of, putting 300 trillion in global debt on top of that, I agree, totally unstable. But if you consider the way that a credit system would work in Bitcoin, you would, it just wouldn't get that big in the first place. And so you'd never need to inflate your way out of it. And so the trap wouldn't seem as bad. Hmm. And if the amount of credit matches the needs of the economy, then building a credit system on top of Bitcoin is just, it's, it doesn't seem unreasonable to me at all. The pr- there, there are a lot of problems though. Like for example, in the, new, in the new system, home prices can't keep going up at the same rate. Of course. Or, you know, and I think in a new system, mortgages will look different. Mortgages will probably need to be at no more than 50% loan to value ratio. Mm -hmm. And then the cost of a house might represent four or five years of wages. So either house prices have to come way down or wages have to go way up or a little bit of both. Probably the, the first house prices having to come way down relative to wages. 
And so our current asset pricing system based on this in, like credit inflated asset values, it's a, it's a huge impediment to imagining a Bitcoin-based monetary system and credit system because you, you're like, well, that would be a crisis. And I think it will be a crisis. But if you um, take the crisis part out on the other side of it, it totally works. There's nothing mathematically impossible about that system. Hmm. I think there's another barrier. And stop me if you if you want to react to any of that. Let me ask just, uh, and maybe you're going to get to this, but unpacking the liquidity principle, which I assume we're going to do. And then yeah, the, the 20, uh, one other question, the 29.3 trillion in base money, is this implying essentially that gold is undervalued 65% because if it's a 10 trillion market cap and it's actually the only real base money? <laughs> um, or, or what's your take on that? I think it, I, I would say it's not value, saying that gold is undervalued because back to what we said at the beginning, I think that the the notional value of the of the base money is just a reflection of the economy that it represents. And so if they stopped inflating the supply and they said, okay, we're just gonna keep the 20, the uh um, what is it, 29.3 trillion that we have now, I think 29.3 trillion is a fine number. Any number is what if you pick any number you can pick to be the amount of base money is a totally good number. Yeah. Um but does, does that just, then reflect the economy then? So are we saying that the global economy is 29.3 trillion? Because I think that's understated too. No, it's not. It's larger than that. 29.3 trillion is just the amount of base money of all the, it's not all of the central banks added up, but it's the ones that 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 they do at the Crypto Voices podcast. They do this base money. Every quarter they do a base money compendium where they add up all the base money in the world of like the top, I want to say 20-ish countries mm. like like the, the like 80 percent of all the base money or something like that 85 percent and so this is 23.9 trillion usd equivalent but they're adding adding up the the base money for each individual country china eu japan all the way down the line including the us and it adds up to the equivalent of 23 29.3 trillion us equivalent but that's not the size of the economy that's just how much that's that's specifically reserves plus cash and coin. Okay. Doesn't include so bank the, accounts, the, checking accounts. That's what I was gonna get to. So base money is bank reserves plus uh narrow money, essentially. Yeah. Circulating notes and in some but the countries, problem there is the bank reserve like again back to Snyder's point, they're just those those are just fictitious entries. I sort of agree, I sort of don't. And hmm. this, we should be wary because this would be such a big tangent because I've been thinking so much about this, but like yeah. there's been a, a, a big movement, especially in like the, the Bitcoin, the part of the, the, the small dark corner of Bitcoin Twitter that I'm a part of that goes out of their way to make this point that bank reserves are not inflationary and that they aren't money and that they're these, they, they call them these Chuck E. Cheese tokens. And I just don't agree. I just, I just disagree uh -huh. with that for a lot of reasons, but I feel like it would take us way off course. So I'm I'm operating not under the assumption that that bank reserves are all nothing, all air, not inflationary, and have no value. I'm operating on the assumption that they're inflationary and that it is money printing. And if you disagree with that, we have an issue. Not not you, but I mean, if you, the viewer, have, oh, have oh, yeah. yeah, like then 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 we need to meet over a beer and talk about it because I I, well, I cannot square myself with that view. So 
Agreed. I'm not going down the tangent here. I just want to throw out conceptually how I'm thinking about it in that if the whole world went to shit and all the debt was called, that ultimately all of these structures end up grounding out in gold, right? It's like base money's a counterparty money. Um, I'm sorry, bank reserves are a counterparty money. SDRs or counterparty money, like all these things that comprise quote unquote base money have counterparty risk except gold. So that's why my, my question was like, is 29.3 trillion in base money overstated because the market cap of gold is only 10 trillion. Um, we don't, we don't need to go down that tangent, but just conceptually, I think that's a bit confusing because. My first answer is that actually if there's a massive unwind, that the purchasing power of the base money would skyrocket, even not even the non-gold part. So maybe the twenty-nine point three trillion, it might it might stay the same. Um, it might increase because central banks would print more of it, but its purchasing power would go way up because, as we've been saying, money being an anti-value, merely reflecting the economy that that backs it. There are. Um, a lot of the wealth in the world is money wealth, AKA debt. And money wealth is something I, I got this from the dying of money, which is like all my, my other most significant influence, but money wealth just refers to um, any, any wealth, like a debt contract, um, sovereign debt, credit contract, that's money wealth. And You're all of that, work, how money dies. Is that right? No, I'm not. It's confusing because there's there's two oh. books with almost the exact same title. There's oh, okay. how money dies. I think there's another one, but this is the dying of money. It's like that oh, Python that skit skit. Ooh, with the <laughs> PFJ. Uh, never mind. Um, but yeah, no, it's a very similar title, but this was written in the 70s by this guy named his pen name was Jenzo Parsons, but his real name was Ronald Marx. And um and I'm going to quote from it actually in a little while, but uh, no, I think I think the purchasing power of the trillion of the base money, because it's already in people's hands, would go way up, but the the debt money would collapse in value, right. and, and and everything would sort of collapse to the value of cash flow. So like all stocks would just in, in immediately crater solely to the value of the whatever they're making. Like week to week would be the value of the company, and no like more. One x cash flow. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Everything, everything in the world would collapse to cash, and so the three hundred trillion would maybe be be suddenly twenty nine point three trillion. Mm. That that's my that's my first take on where it would go if there was a massive underwind un unwind, because I think people would especially in a panic, they would still see their notes as valuable and they would still see their balances as valuable. Their, their cash balances. They might become the most valuable thing for a short period of time. Right. Does that answer your question? Well, suffice to say, it's very confusing because I just, again, just conceptually thinking if all debt gets unwound all the way down to bare asset, it's like, what's mm -hmm. at the bottom of the whole fiat currency complex? Well, it's gold. So everyone would demand if this, just say there's no more debt, all the debt needs to get cleared. Well, everyone needs to settle. So everyone would settle to gold, presumably, if you actually I mean, real, want zero like zero liability. 
I guess it depends if people feel that way about gold. Uh, I don't know if people feel that way about it. I don't know if people yeah, really gold, would accept it. Gold or Bitcoin, I would assume, would be the only monies that could fit the bill for that. Anyways, I don't want to drag us down the tangent, but I just want to highlight that it is confusing. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is really confusing. <laughs> I think I think if there's a massive unwind, I mean, it's a great thing to think about without going on that tangent. But I, I think most likely if there's beginning of a massive unwind, the federal, the central banks of the world would do some sort of massive operation where they would do a find and replace, and they'd find every dollar of debt and they would replace it with a real dollar. They just delete the debt and replace it with money. Like, oh, if you, oh, you owed four hundred thousand on your house, you now have four hundred thousand to pay off your house. Something it would, it would sort of it, that would be sort of the the, the the type of jubilee, so that everyone was whole and no one owed anything, or they do it at like. 50 cents on the dollar, but they would just, they just replace the debt with, with, with more money. Which would just annihilate the economy. Yeah. I mean, it would, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I honestly, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's so complicated and so disastrous and also so plausible and also unavoidable. <laughs> <laughs> Good way to put it. But I think that that the there's a an abstract problem I think people have imagining a credit system uh, built on Bitcoin. I don't know if people really have this problem, but I think there's this like vague sense that there isn't enough Bitcoin out there. Mm -hmm. This almost like um, quasi superstitious belief that you just need more because of unit bias, because we've right. been, you know, you, you, you heard this that like when, um, who was it, Summers, who's going to, to ask for the bailout in 2008? I don't know if it was Larry Summers or, or Bernanke or Geithner, but they, they said they, when they were going to Congress, they said, well, we can't use the T word, meaning trillion. It just, mm. it can't be that big because no one, no one talks that way. So that's mm. how TARP ended up at 700 billion. But now, you know, the T word, people use that all the time. They've yeah. just become inured to that. And so I think the fact that Bitcoin stops at 21 million, there's just this, this non-scientific belief that there just isn't enough. Right. So I did this, this thought experiment. Again, this is all towards building the idea of imagining a credit system built on Bitcoin. There's a Credit Suisse report on global wealth. The US has 30.2% of global wealth, and that's financial wealth and non-financial wealth. So only 68% of that is financial wealth. So 68% of 32% is 20.5%. So the US has 20% of all the financial wealth in the world, which is so 20% of, again, if money is an anti-value, the US has 20% of the money value of the wealth in the world, of all the factories, computers, of all the, of all the things that are actual value, the mm -hmm. US has 20% of the money that represents the purchasing power of it. Mm -hmm. So if you translate that into a share of Bitcoin, then if you assume that there's 21 million supply, then the U.S. then the wage earning adults in the U.S. would have four million three hundred twelve thousand five hundred sixty Bitcoin of all of the Bitcoin that'd be in the U.S. 
But if you supply that, if you if you if you assume that the liquid supply is four million Bitcoin, then that's eight hundred twenty thousand Bitcoin spread across the wage earning adults in the United States. So there's two hundred two million wage earning adults. That means sort of like lifetime wealth is about two million Sats per adult. But if, if that's if you use the twenty one million Bitcoin in circulation, but if you use four million liquid supply, then there's uh, it's it's about four hundred thousand sats lifetime wealth, and so you have between four hundred thousand to two point one million sats per adult as their total money wealth in the United States, and so let's say that half that of is value of your home. I mean, the average home would cost between two hundred two hundred thousand and one million sats. So I th- I think people have this like vague free floating anxiety about there's not enough Bitcoin in existence to have an economy. But if a home costs 200,000 to a million sats, then, you know, there's just plenty of Bitcoin left to have factories and salaries for factory workers and roads and salaries for people to build roads and restaurants. There's just plenty of Bitcoin for the global economy. It, it implies a different, I, I don't want to say that it's tempting to say, well, what price does that imply for Bitcoin? But it's totally irrelevant because the price is in the things that it buys. This this um, I this book that I'm reading right now is just this beautiful book. It's called it's called Money at Interest: The Farm Mortgage on the Middle Border. It was written in the 50s, and it's about lending in the Western territories in the late 1800s, where um, starting farm late 1800s was like was considered capital intensive, and what that meant was you needed a thousand dollars to start a farm. To build a home, you needed $250. It's not just anti, it's not just like romantically antiquated to think, oh, I could build a house for $250, or I could a thousand dollars is enough capital to start um, a capitalist enterprise in the 1850s. It's just that's how much money there was, and that's how much it costs. So it's totally to say that a, a house would cost between 200000 and a million sats. It's irrelevant what dollar value that implies. It, what it implies is the value of the, the actual real thing that it buys, which is the house. Mm-hmm. And there's just a ton of Bitcoin left over. You, you have so much Bitcoin left over, you could have inflation. You could have price inflation. You could have, price, you can have whatever you want. Yeah, I think, the, I mean, the key point here, I think unit bias is one way to look at it, that people just get locked into thinking a you know, a certain dollar value is assignable to a certain type of asset, right? Right. Like we think a nice home in the U.S. today is like what a million, two million bucks, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all arbitrary, ultimately. Totally. And and there's this the other key point here. I think is that the money supply itself is always zero sum because again, if it's just a reflection of all the wealth, right? It's a a call option on wealth, something like mm-hmm. that. If you increase the supply of money, then you've taken away from someone, right? The more money I have, the less you have, right? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. that's obvious on Bitcoin, but that's also true even with dollars. When we increase the number of dollars, whoever's getting those dollars is taking purchasing power from other holders of dollars. But that's the money supply. The purchasing power of money is positive sum, right? So the the more wealth there is in the economy, the more wealth is being reflected in the money. So the more purchasing power in my money means the more purchasing power in your money, mm-hmm. basically. 
So there's a key, there's almost like a, a point of confusion there where people associate, or I guess people confuse the money supply with the purchasing power that money represents. Um, people confuse the money supply with the purchasing power that the money represents. Um, I know I agree with you, but for some reason I can't even wrap my mind around what that, I can't. Well, just to say like, okay, COVID hits. Mm -hmm. The U.S. government prints $4 trillion. Everyone, like the first order thinking mind is like, oh, great. We have $4 trillion extra dollars. Right. We've added right. wealth to the economy. Right. But you haven't done that at all. You've just the changed entries on a database and reallocated claims to wealth. Yeah. So, yeah. You, um, you've, you've, you've done the exact the opposite of what you intended. Literally the opposite thing. Yes. But if people are ignorant enough about money, then you can get away with it in broad daylight, as we have seen. I think that it's changing. I think that the ignorance level is decreasing. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yen Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. But... Let's it is true on. that if, if if people are in the dark about it, you can you can get away with it for for as long as I mean we we we've, we've been doing it. I mean the the point of the Keynes's whole agenda was to what he what he like the low interest rate agenda was he thought he was going to abolish the rentier class, meaning people who got interest, the 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 lenders. And he had this idea that, that once interest rates were driven low enough, permanently enough, the rentier class would just disappear because they were no longer needed. And what he didn't take into account is that the rentier class is actually just middle-class people on pensions who own government debt. They're the lenders. They're the, the usurious lenders. They're just the, 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 the actual rentiers I think he had in his mind are smarter than that. And they sidestepped all this and they're gone. But the people who really are loaning the money and who are really being cheated by the creation of all this new money are middle and lower, middle and lower income people on fixed incomes who have savings in cash or who own government debt. And those are the people who didn't go away. And those are the people who pay the price for the artificially low interest rates, which are created by printing money to prop up the value of these assets. And there's this concept that because we have an economy that's built on 
again, talking, I, I want to talk about the credit structure because we have this concept that the credit structure is so vital to the economy because we grew up with a massive and totally over swollen credit structure. It's just, it's not necessary for an economy that it's just not a necessary thing for the economy. Mm-hmm. It's not any more necessary than we have a, a huge motorcycle industry. Credit has to exist. There has to be lending. I, I think that that does exist, but I think that the ease of payments with Bitcoin makes that, I mean, the, the you had to have credit in gold. We talked about this in the last episode because you couldn't affect payments locally because gold is burdensome to ship and Bitcoin changes that dramatically. Uh-huh. But I do think you will still need a credit system because people will still need to borrow capital they don't have. They need the capital. They don't need the, the credit instrument. They'll need the capital. So someone might want someone might want to start a farm and they might need $1,000 to build a house or $100,000 to build a house. What they don't have is the, the wood and the actual capital. And to get it, they'll need to borrow the mechanism to get it, which is the value, the money. And so we will have to have credit. We will have to have lending. And that's been because that's been the hardest thing for me to picture. That's what I spent the the most time trying to trying to understand, because I didn't understand how a bank would function. Right. But 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 this massive. This is. Um, I'm going to read this passage from Dying of Money. It is sometimes said that interest is the rental price of money, and this is the root of the error. If interest were the price of money according to the law of supply and demand, interest rates must go down as the supply of money went up. The Keynesian objective of low interest rates could then be achieved by monetary inflation. Interest is not the price of money any more than a motorcycle is the price of the money that buys it. Money having no value has no price. But money is the price of all other things of value. Interest, or more specifically, the money contract which bears interest, aka the asset, that is the subject matter of the purchase and sale involved in lending money, not the money itself. It's the interest that is being bought with the money, not the money being rented with the interest. A borrower doesn't rent money in the usual sense of keeping it and then returning it later. He sells it instantly. He sells his own contract to pay interest now and principal later. And he quickly respends that money on something else with the money that he receives for selling his contract. The point is not merely academic in the slightest. If interest were the price of money, interest would be as universal as money is and might have something like the importance that economics and finance attach to it. In reality, Interest is merely the market price prevailing in but one of the markets of commerce, the market for debt, bonds, credit, and other interest contracts. It happens that this market was rather a large market in the United States, but nothing about capitalism requires it to be. A market for money contracts is no more vital or indispensable than a market for, say, frozen orange juice contracts. So what he's saying is interest doesn't need to play the role in our economy that we've been conditioned to think it does. And I think that's a big barrier to people imagining a Bitcoin standard. So so he goes on, I won't read the rest of it, but he just he basically goes on to explain the phenomenon that a lot of people have been talking about, which is that when there's high inflation, it actually creates high interest rates. And when there's I'll read the end because it gets into a big point. 
I'm just going to skip you to the end of this passage. If demand for interest contracts should totally disappear, as it should do in an inflation, if lenders really knew what they were about, interest rates would be infinite at the same time that the total supply of money was also approaching infinity. Monetary inflation causes high interest rates, not low ones. So you might say, bring it back to Bitcoin, if inflation causes high interest rates, does a disinflationary money cause low interest rates? And I don't think that's, I don't think that's true either. I think what a hard money does is that it causes market rates to function. And on a market, rates differ according to the application. They differ according to the borrower and the lender. And there should be no national rate of interest anymore than there should be a national price of motorcycles. So in a functioning market for interest, which is what I think we would have in Bitcoin, you'd have people offering money contracts for interest, aka borrowers. And then you'd have people offering, they have people in the market for those money contracts for interest, and those would be lenders. And then they would find a way to match according to the application, according to the risk. And you'd have some some industries that have high interest rates, some that have low. The interest rate is determined by the return you're going to get on the loan. It has nothing. There's no there's no right rate. Right, Ten percent interest is fine. Fifteen percent of interest is fine if you're going to make two hundred percent on the loan. This is one of the core functions of banks originally, right? To actually match borrowers and lenders, mm-hmm. um, both in terms of rate and maturity. Um, let me ask you this. Is it proper to think of the, the purpose credit or debt is serving as smoothing over dislocations in the market between buyers and sellers? Or you, yeah, you, gave, th- the, you gave the early example of like a guy that wants to sell whatever textiles, but he has mm-hmm. to ship it and it takes three weeks and all that. So the bank needs to intermediate that transaction. Is that the case? You're saying that it's intermediating between buyers and sellers of of goods or well, of well, I'm just thinking that where there are dislocations between buyers and sellers in either time or space, you typically need credit to fill that gap. I right? think credit, so I think credit allows for the application of labor in what is societally recognized as like a growth area. Like going back to the uh, the developing this um farm mortgage in the 1800s is like a great study and exactly this because every this is um after the the homestead act in 1865 you could maybe get an acre of land for like a dollar 60 or something like that or you could get it for free if you occupied it for five years but basically everyone was like oh we should start settling into the west which was um illinois iowa nebraska dakota there's land there a lot of it is fertile but there isn't we have to incentivize people have to go and 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 put their lives on the line their time on the line to go and um homestead that land improve the land cultivate the land the only thing we just we can provide the money and the capital if they're willing to put in the time so i think interest is a way of bridging the gap between sweat equity and capital if you're willing to put in time there's probably a loan if you're going to put your time into something that the market sees as valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the key point that because wherever the loan proceeds are deployed there, that needs 
to be into a, an endeavor or enterprise that outperforms the general rate of productivity growth in the market. Otherwise, it's not worth it, right? Otherwise, the lender's incentive is to just hold the money and let the purchasing power accrete to them. Right, right. Um, and there should be competition. You know, you should have, I think in a functioning economy, I mean, we have this, we have a perverted version of this, but in a, in a functioning economy, you know, money laying idle will, will you'll want to do something with it. I mean, you and I touched on this before. Like if, yeah. you're, if you're holding on to all this capital, you're not going to want to let it sit there when it could actually do something in the world. And, you know, one of the problems that early, early capitalists had in, in this, this case study in farm mortgages in the 1850s is they'd have these agents who are out, they'd give these, um, a lot of money came from the East and they'd send it West. And then these agents were supposed to find mortgages for them. And mm -hmm. there's a letter from one of the financiers to their agent. They're like, we've had $6,000 just sitting in the bank for a few months. We don't like that. It should be lent. It should be doing something. So you mm -hmm. should have, again, you should have competition. You should be competing for loans and you should be, as a borrower, you should be competing to find the funds. And that's mm -hmm. where the rate of interest should come from. I mean, mm -hmm. interest rates, there was, um, there were usury laws in Illinois where they, interest rates were capped, I think 10 or 8%. But, you know, interest rates were um, 10, 12, if you can include commissions, 15%. But then, then what happened? A bunch of capital came into the market and there are all these letters about, oh, we can't hold 8% because uh, this other um, life insurance company uh, is moving into our territory in Iowa and they're offering 8%. Okay, we're offering 7%. So what should be lowering interest rates is competition. Mm -hmm. That's what should be lowering interest rates. Yeah, another point here, I think that really helped me understand this better was it's not, interest rate is not, specific only to money actually it's more of a it's specific to capital in general yeah yeah and the i think the easiest way to think about this is that the higher the interest rate is this indicates a higher demand for receiving capital sooner right to say yes if i'm an owner of capital i have more of an interest in holding that capital uh than lending it out. And that's reflected in the higher price that I charge for lending it out. And it doesn't have to be, again, doesn't have to be money. You could have an interest rate on anything. It could be equipment, right? Um, and so the key point there, I think through the process of civilization, like the more capital we accumulate, the more, say the more capital stock there is in the world, that means clearly higher supply of capital. And I think the general tendency is for the interest rate to decline over time. So higher supply of capital, same demand would be lower price, so lower interest rate over time. And a lot of the Austrian literature also argues that the natural interest rate, which we should be very clear, talking about the natural interest rate, not the interest rate you're accustomed to seeing the Fed talking about, um, actually reflects aggregate time preference. So the lower the interest rate, the lower aggregate time preference, and therefore, in many ways, reflects the level uh, the level of civilization, frankly, which means the more capital we have, the lower the time preference, aggregate time preference, the um, more sophisticated civilization is. Um, and it, it also tends to be related to things like morality and whatnot, because 
there's more abundance. There's more economic abundance. So there's less to fight over and, and all of that. It's hard. It's hard for me to, it's hard for me to say what is, what is right or what is better. And I think that's when, when I try and think about nature's rate of interest, um, Snyder mentioned this on, on, on one of your episodes with him, this guy named Newt Wixel did some, tried to think about the concept of the natural rate of interest. And what he came up with was like, is there a rate of interest in the economy without thinking of it as the money rate of interest? And he, 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 he posited that it's, if you could loan just the capital without it loaning out the money, like if, if, if I could loan you just a machine, let's say you were starting a, a, a tool and die company, and instead of loaning you the money to start the company, I could just loan you the machinery and the buildings and everything you needed. What would the return be on just the capital goods? That's sort of the natural rate of interest, not the money rate of interest. But the money rate of interest has been, you know, money has no value and the money rate of interest has been totally fucked with because we developed this strange market for credit instruments and the and our central banks bid up the price of these credit instruments and one of the deleterious effects of that which is what they're trying to do is that it lowers the effective rate of interest but i do believe that there is a natural rate of interest in the world right now i don't know where it comes from i don't know if it's because we've been neglecting the capital stock and so interest rates are higher but i think that bitcoin uh, housing, I think they represent what is more of the natural rate of interest in our economy, whether that's good or bad or reflects high time preference or low. I, I, I don't know. And I think in a functioning market, there would be no natural rate. There would be no one rate. It would change industry to industry, location to location, borrower to borrower. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I should be clear. That's what I mean by natural interest rate is determined on the market, right? Borrowers and lenders, and it's not fixed. When I say natural, it doesn't mean there's like 1% is the natural rate. It's what it should be. It's right. dynamic, okay. yeah, just like anything else. And I think this little excerpt you already read, but it sums it up. There should be, there should no more be a national rate of interest than there should be a national price of motorcycles. Like it's centrally, it's centrally plan, it's central yeah. planning of the market price that doesn't work in any market ever anywhere. Why should we think it works in the market for money? And the only reason that they have this control, quasi control of the rate of interest is because they control the market for credit securities. Yes. Yeah. And, and so and that's the legal monopoly on currency. Right. Right. They, they can, you know, uh, these open market operations are defined by, they have the money to they have the, the printer to print the money and then they've got the warehouse of credit instruments to sell so it's we think these credit instruments are worth this much and if you think we're crazy we'll pay you this much for them and then if you need them you have to pay this much from us to that's what an open market operation is i mean that's 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 how you know luke roman talks a lot about how the us has has also the ability to do that with gold because they have the printer to print the money and they've got enough gold, they, they say, okay, if gold's $5,000, the US could actually potentially enforce that by saying, well, if you think we're crazy, then 
sell us your gold and we'll pay you 5,000. We have infinite dollars. Mm-hmm. And then when, when, and then the, the, then the government could, then if you want gold from the government, they could say, you also have to pay us that much to get it from us because we have the most. So that's sort of how an open market operation changes the, the price of an asset when they, and I think that's how they've, they've, the, this, this interest rate lever, like they don't even have real control of the interest rate lever. They're just using their fake inventory to control the interest rate lever. Mm-hmm. It used to be that the interest rate lever was was changed by a bank saying, well, this is how much we will charge you to borrow from us. But now they change it through manipulating the price of these assets that they have a monopoly on. Yeah, it's gone from the sphere of supply and demand to policy. Basically, mm-hmm. the policy is only possible because of all of these, you know, the legal monopoly um, and the ability to just create new currency and new debt. So this is like, I think this is my last passage from liquidity. Um, but he says that the classical theory of money market control by discount rate changes and by open market operations was based on the assumption of a liquid banking structure. A liquid banking structure allows the central bank or the Federal Reserve System a substantial power over market fluctuations. The actual failure or unsatisfactory working of discount and open market policy in major booms and depressions reflects the fact that the banking system has been illiquid in each case. And this is not the whole story. Theoretically, a quantitative policy can be devised to, quote, manage the money supply according to preconceived standards, but monetary management per se must turn out to be a failure if the banks have already committed themselves along illiquid lines. Interference then leads to breakdown, which it was supposed to avoid. Liquid banking, on the other hand, actually achieves stabilization by inhibiting the major boom and eliminating its consequence, the major depression. So a banking system that requires banks to uh, respect their own liquidity actually incentivizes them into a behavior that that actually avoids the 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 boom in a fir- in the first place, and by avoiding the boom, you avoid the depression. Like we said a while ago, uh, the the failure of the policy is not how it performs during the crisis, the failure of the policies, how it performs during the prosperity. Mm-hmm. That's what so, we say. A liquid banking structure is one in which banks have skin in the game. right? Yeah, totally. Totally. And a liquid banking structure presupposes a money, which is finite. Mm. Right. Yeah, but it's the credit expansion itself that c- turns a liquid banking structure into an illiquid banking structure. Right. And then when the right, exactly. And then when the federal, when the when the central reserve steps in to purchase all that debt and then commit itself along illiquid lines, committing itself along illiquid lines means that it has purchased so much of this debt, it can no longer shift the burden to anyone else. And right. that's the end of the road for that debt. 
It, they have to support the value of that debt, the market value of those credit securities at all costs, and they are thus illiquid. Again, the, the, yeah. the central yeah. bank can never sell their inventory. They're illiquid. Yeah, so this is like it's like musical chairs or hot potato or something. The central bank gets stuck with all the toxic assets, mm-hmm. and then what can it do other than enforce more taxation or inflation? Or and the only way to get that inflation is to increase, is to make people borrow more and more and more to make that, that 300 trillion, you know, they have to make that 600 trillion. And the only way people can borrow more and more and more is to artificially keep interest rates down and then also increase, increase the maturity structure of the debt. Mm-hmm. You going back to late 1800s, I've got this little table here. Let's look at the average maturities of these, these loans. These are farm mortgages in the 1890s. These are six, two, six years, six and a half years is the, the longest life of the mortgage. Mm-hmm. In some states, it was under three. And I think that when I start thinking of how a Bitcoin standard could work, I'm like, yeah, if I'm borrowing Bitcoin and paying it back at, at a market rate and my loan is a year and a half, now I get it because you know Bitcoin will be a lot less volatile and I'm not going to be paying it back for 30 years. I'm be paying right. it back for a year. And a lot right. of people, and I know I'm repeating points, but a lot of people say, well, you don't, you don't, you can't pay a home back in a year. Well, you can if the home is only um represents two, three years of of wages. You could save for a year and a half, and then you get the loan and then you save for another year and a half. Yeah. Which is another way of saying when the monetary premium has not is not being pushed into housing. Yes. Yes. By virtue of monetary debasement, then all of a sudden homes become much more affordable. Right. So like I'm skipping down to these these Fred charts of the look at look at the 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 these are um mortgage backed securities that are now on the balance sheet of the Fed. It's two point six eight six trillion mortgage backed securities that the Fed owns. And that is to prop up the value of these securities so that the price of the that so, so because because the securities have value, the banks that write the securities can keep making more of them. If the securities lose value, the banks can't write more of them, and thus the that takes the wind out of the credit market for homes. So homes have to be unaffordable for it's 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 existentially important to our current system that homes remain totally unaffordable. Which thus exacerbates homelessness and you know tears up the social fabric and all of that. It's just so, so self-defeating ultimately. It is. It really is. And, and this is the, you know, the, the only part that's going to be dangerous for all of us is that in order to get to the other side, I can, I can now imagine another side, but I think just to stay on home values, I think home values just have to change a lot. Mm-hmm. And that is going to be disruptive. And it's more in line with economic reality. Like a home yeah. is not an investment asset. A home is a durable consumer good. Mm-hmm. Right? It's expensive. Clearly, you need to save up and buy it. But then you don't expect it to like get better year over year or to appreciate. Like it should be depreciating. It's it's, it's a home. Wear and tear. Yeah. All these things. I, I agree. I agree. I 
I'm fully prepared for my home to be worth half as much. I mean, well, your your liquid net worth on the Bitcoin position, your balance sheet's probably going to be 10 or 100x in that situation. So you should be okay. I want to um I want to share a thread just as a tribute to at Natural Money BTC, to whom we owe a lot of gratitude for this whole series. Because he was kind of the one through his writing that he not only introduced me to Pally, but this concept of the maturity mismatch. So this is a, a Twitter thread from him. And he wrote, loan durations are a really important consideration here. Increasing leverage in the current system necessitates ever-expanding duration, but this lowers financial market liquidity, reduces the mobility of labor and productivity. Locking up ever longer periods of uncertain incomes isn't a healthy or sustainable means of providing real growth. We want to extend the length of production, not the debts. The former increases productivity and real incomes. The latter creates debt slaves and is inimical to productivity. A mild inflationary system where Bitcoin supply goes up a quarter of a percent to a percent per year, while output goes up 1.5 to 3%, is perfectly capable of supporting a credit market. The durations, however, would have to be short, five to 10-year home loans, one to two-year car loans, et cetera. Debt-laden balance sheets would be minimized. Issuance would be subject to a growth and productivity-friendly hurdle rate. This would engender productive use of credit while suppressing wasteful reinvestment in productivity, suppressing zombies. I mean, this is such a beautiful, I'm going to keep, I'm just so stunned and beautiful this vision is because the whole this whole exercise in imagining a Bitcoin standard it's so real to me in this, in these words, mm-hmm. because I see the whole, I see the whole credit structure, I see the loans, I see how people get houses. I see the whole thing coming into being and it. It's, it's much more like the gold standard than I ever thought it would be. Uh, credit issuance would be subjective to a growth and productivity friendly hurdle rate. I'm repeating myself. This would engender productivity, productive use of credit while suppressing wasteful reinvestment in productivity suppressing zombies. The fact that today we have a distorted production structure with a large percent of zombies is not the fault of Bitcoin. It is the legacy of grow nominally at any cost Keynesianism, which carries externalities of long depressions for Main Street and a pronounced risk of currency failure. Our focus should be on understanding why capital is atrophying today amid near zero or negative marginal returns on investments. The well-being of a society can go down alongside full employment if capital is mismanaged and output atrophies. Mm -hmm. Full employment is a desirable byproduct, not an end. Mm -hmm. When first principles lead you to enable a crescendo of leverage, you're compelled to socialize the attendant risks and subjugate the currency to bailing out credit structure indefinitely. This is an incredibly stupid and self-defeating economic strategy. The realities of scarcity and the challenge of efficient capital allocation, rather than being expressed expressed a front end through the hurt rate, are delayed and thus transformed into extreme systemic risks and predatory debt peonage for the masses, pain now or pain later. We know as a matter of historical fact, this is a fucking great thread. We know as a matter of historical fact that real income and output growth rates of 2 to 3% are achievable over long periods of time in low leverage and low duration credit systems with modestly deflationary monies. 
The first challenge is in accepting the reality of trade-offs in play. The second is in talking through and individually planning for the transition. Maximizing household, firm, and country-level production and savings will go a long way towards smoothing that transition. Those who own bad debts will get their due. And then he credits uh, Alan Farrington's essays, Wittgenstein's Money, The Capital Strip Mine, Bitcoin is Venice for helping him. Mm-hmm. As that, that thread is just, I mean, that, that, that thread itself was the beginning of my journey, honestly. It's like, mm-hmm. I understand what this person thinks and I have to understand what he's talking about. That's really good. I had not read that thread. Um, and the one thing I'd add to it, it's pain now or way more pain later. Yeah. Right. And this is just back to the, the Talabian concept of delayed volatility is exacerbated volatility. You can't hide it. You can't wish it away. Um, it comes, right? And if you delay it or suppress it, it comes more severely. I'm skipping down. I just, just for my own edification, I put in these listeners can't see what you're looking at, but I just took screenshots of these hundred year, hundred year corporate bonds that you can see on E-Trade. This is a, I don't know, this is a Canadian Pacific Railroad bond that matures in 2170. And the yield to maturity is 3.7%. hundred years. Wow. Um, for those who I'm going to, if you, if you go down to page 44 in our, our outline, I'm going to skip this, but if, if for those who are really into the um, economic scholasticism, Rothbard outright rejects everything we're talking about. And I want to acknowledge that because I just love Rothbard. And you can find a passage in chapter three of uh, America's Great Depression where he explicitly, he, this, this um, liquidity principle that Pal Yi talks about is, is, is also part of this economic school called the banking school. And Rothbart rejects the banking school and explicitly rejects that you take passages that we read, Rothbart regurgitates them and says that they're wrong. And um, I don't think we should go into this tit for tat for you know, one economist versus another. I just feel like I have to acknowledge it because um, Rothbard also makes some good points. But I would I would say that in defense of Pagli in advance, Pagli does not consider himself as part of the banking school. Uh, in Pagli's writing, he says that there's the banking school and there's the currency school and they're both naive and they both have their problems. So I feel like if we have conjured both of them to have a debate, Pagli would have a rejoinder and I don't want to try and speak for him. But I do want to acknowledge that among people I respect, there is a rejection of this concept of the, the, the liquidity principle as a rejection of what the banking school said. It was also called the real bills doctrine. And the other thing I'll say is that, um, you know, Rothbard attacks it as a, they think this will prevent inflation, but short-term loans are just as inflationary. And, and I think that Pagli's point is not li- liquid banking prevents inflation. Pagli's point is liquid banking keeps bankings functioning, keeps banks functioning. Mm. Hey guys, I hope you found this episode valuable. At the What Is Money Show, we are striving to deliver the most valuable knowledge possible in each and every episode. However, as Aristotle said, the purpose of knowledge is action, not knowledge. So 
I hope you're deriving some useful knowledge from the show, and I hope it's improving the actions you are taking in your life. Speaking of action, if you want to dive deeper into the big ideas explored in this show, please sign up for my newsletter titled The Freedom Analex at breedlove22.substack.com. Also, have you bought your tickets for Bitcoin 2022 in Miami yet? If not, it's your lucky day, as I am giving away 10 million sats, which is roughly 4,000 US dollars, to one lucky person who buys a conference ticket through my affiliate link. My affiliate link can be found on my Twitter profile, at breedlove22, um, which also has a link. My Twitter profile has a link to my link tree, which you can also visit my link tree directly for links to all my work, including... Bitcoin 2022 affiliate cells. My link tree is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E backslash breedlove22. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys watching the show. I hope you're finding some valuable knowledge in the What Is Money show, and I'll see you back here again next time.